Welcome to the Table Community Church Podcast. The Table is located in the Gallatin Valley in Southwest Montana and is joining God in bringing people together around the good news of Jesus. If you have any questions or if there is in any way we can serve you, please let us know by reaching out to hello at thetablechurch.us. Again, that is hello at thetablechurch.us. We hope you enjoy the following episode. We started a series last week called Recovering the Church, and the premise is the church has lost its footing in many ways in our culture. We're struggling to see through the fog of all the cultural issues, whether they be issues related to politics, issues related to our own cultural air of consumerism and individualism and obsession with the individual. Um, our, the church has often lost its footing. We really struggle to make sense of who we are, and there are many competing voices telling us who we should be, what we should be doing, and what's important. And so the premise of the series is let's pause on the external voices, let's go back to the voice of Jesus and see what He has to say about who His church is supposed to be. We talked about last week how Acts 2 is considered the birth of the church, and if that's the birth of the church, Matthew 16 through 18 is the church in utero. This is where Jesus is teaching the, the, the conceived idea of the church. He's saying, when, when this thing takes place, as we build, this is what you can expect. And there's a pivotal shift from Matthew 15 and Matthew 16 that we, that's easy to discern if you look at the text. In our text today, it's going to say from that moment on, what it's talking about is Matthew is drawing a line and saying, everything else is centered around Jesus teaching us what it means to be his community, and we'll see that a little bit. And so we're interested about what Jesus has to say about the church, not your favorite political commentator, not my favorite political commentator, not Aunt Bessie who has a social media feed that just posts all things, memes, Christian. We want to hear from Jesus. And so last week we ended with Jesus is king, the rest is discipleship. That's the foundation of the church. That is the entry to the church. When anyone says, I believe Jesus is king, no matter what they're Moments before that comment looked like, our role as a church is to receive people right where they acknowledge that Jesus is king, and the rest is discipleship. And it's that process of discipleship that really matters, that tells us who we are becoming and what we actually believe about Jesus. Are we leading Jesus in our own agendas, or are we following Jesus with his? That's the space of discipleship, and that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to pick up right where we left off, and Matthew 16 through 18, remember, is a section about the church his people, they called them themselves disciples. So we'll hone in on that language. So Matthew 16, 21 through 28, let's read that. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. Better translation is, God forbid that. Never, Lord, he said, this shall not happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. 
What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man, remember with last week that's another kingship title, for this king is going to come into his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before the Son of Man coming into, before seeing the Son of Man come into his kingdom. That's God's word for this morning. Amen? A couple of, I guess last year I read a book, fantastic book. It's moved up into one of my top five for as far as fiction and novels go. Um, it's called Midnight Library. And the book is by Matt Haig, and he's a fantastic author. He has a way of making these stories extremely relevant to the, to the soul of the individual. It's, it's a fantastic book. But in Midnight Library, it's about this character named Nora who is at the depths of despair in her life. Her relationships are not where she thought they would be at this point in her life. Her work is not where she thought it would be at this point in her life. Everything seems to be going wrong. She had lost her job. Her friendships and family are scattered. She's lonely. She's agitated within herself. She's agitated at herself, crushing herself with the weight of the world's demands. And she's in despair. She's at the deepest levels of despair. And so she comes home after a really hard day, losing her job, contemplating all the issues she had in her former relationship. And she's at such despair that she does not see a way out. And so she, has, she decides to take her own life. She leaves a note, and then she takes some medications, and she drifts off. Now, the book is about what's happening in between, before she actually dies. She's in this in-between stage. And what happens is she falls in her psyche and herself and her heart and mind, whatever you want to call it, she falls into this library. And this library is filled with moving shelves. It's massive. And the librarian, she looks over, it's, it's her elementary school teacher or a librarian in this library. And she goes, what am I doing here? And she gets mad. She goes, because I can't even end my own life right. Why am, I, why am I here? She's frustrated. She's confused. And she lands in this library, and she sees a clock that's winding down. And the librarian says, welcome to the midnight library. All these books you see are alternative lives you could, have, you, could, you could choose to live. And so in this space, she can flip through all these different alternative versions of her life. And as soon as she opens the book, she falls into the story. And when she falls into the story, she starts living out this life. And if it satisfies her fully, that's where she'll stay. She has a chance to pick any of the lives that are available in this massive library. But here's the catch. The clock is winding down, and the moment that she is dissatisfied with the life that she has fallen into, it sends her back to the library. And so it's a race against the clock and trying to figure out, does she want to live? And what life does she want to live? The whole premise, the question is, will she find a life worth living? And she goes and she finds... She finds, she enters into a life where she's a scientist, where she's famous, where she's, where she's a, a mom. She, she falls into all these different stories. And the question is haunting, isn't it? Will we find a life worth living? Because it's been my experience over the last several years, last few years especially, 
that more people, they may not be on that level of despair, but most people I'm meeting with these days are communicating a level of dissatisfaction, disillusionment, and despair about their current life situation. Things are not where they thought they ought to be. They've been doing all these various things, trying to find themselves, and ultimately they just come up empty. There are many levels and layers to despair. Most of us are not where Nora was. Some of us are. What's fascinating about this text is that Jesus is saying that he actually has the way to the true life, to the true self. And that the church, what we do as a church, if Jesus is king, the rest is discipleship, the building blocks of discipleship begin with us falling into the story of God and allowing him to shape our lives. This is the library that we stand in. We fall into God's redemptive story in Christ. And he promises that life is found in that story, not in these thousands of other alternative versions that we try to live for and find. And so the point for today is that the church is a community of disciples who follow Jesus from death to life. And we're going to ask, what does it mean to follow Jesus as his disciples? Again, this is not optional, but integral for what it means to be the church. Well, let's get behind this word follow real quick. Jesus says, follow me in this text. This word follow, it's not a casual word like you follow somebody on social media. You scroll through their feed every now and then. And you're like, oh yeah, I'll follow that person. No, no, this follow is a deep, devoted loyalty and commitment. It is, it is a word that we have lost upon ourselves. It's a, it's a, it's a um, loyalty is probably the best word for it. An expressed act of loyalty. And this word disciple, it's not just someone who likes the teachings of Jesus. It's someone who would immerse themselves in following a teacher, a rabbi, or a tradition in order to receive it and pass it along, to imitate their teacher. This is a disciple. It's arranging one's person's life around a teacher or tradition and inheriting that and then imitating that. That's a disciple. And so following in discipleship in our culture has often been reduced to Sunday attendance and making sure we don't cuss in front of the kids throughout the week. If I do those things, I'm following Jesus. Jesus demands much more, but gives much more. It's more than Sundays, discipleship is. What we do here is a practice of discipleship, but it don't confuse this with disciple. And all disciples, all teachers, all traditions, all stories are trying to tell you about the good life. Otherwise, we wouldn't follow them. No one knowingly follows something that's not the way to life. No one says, you know what? This seems destructive. I'll go this direction. No. We may follow a path that is destructive, but our intent is to find life. So, what do disciples do? There are three things here that we find that disciples do. And remember, we are a disciple community following from death to life. And so when I talk about disciple, I'm talking about you as an individual and us as a church. The first thing is that disciples get behind Jesus. That's the first thing. Disciples get behind Jesus. You see, when we open this text, it's talking about from that moment on, they've recognized that Jesus is king, but they misunderstand what it means. And so Matthew 16 through 18 is really Jesus teaching them what it means that he is king and what it means to be his people. The whole point of the series, in fact. The problem is it's not the king they'd expect. See, 
they were expecting. This king, your king? Excellent. For their tradition and from their understanding, the king then would march into Jerusalem, set up a kingdom, demolish Rome, expel them, launch a physical real kingdom in that moment that would restore power, prosperity, and purpose to God's people. This is how, this is how they read the texts. This was a social political move that they were expecting Jesus to fulfill. Understandably, they had no point of reference for how, what Jesus was talking about. So we can't look at them and go, yeah, we, we know better. No, actually, no, we don't. If you're watching the news and you're watching Christians online, we might not actually know much better than what they did. But the point is, they misunderstood the king. And so Jesus clarifies for them. Here's what happens. Peter takes Jesus aside, it says, after hearing that he must go into Jerusalem and he's going to be killed by what you might call the pastors, the church planters, and the district supervisors. That's basically what's happening. These people were perceived to be the good guys, the, the, the bearers of morality and religion that they trusted. Jesus is going to be killed by them. Well, Peter's not having none of it. Peter takes Jesus aside. This language of taking aside, it's used in other places in Scripture to signify a power move. Other people take people aside to rebuke them with authority. And so Peter's not just concerned, he is assuming authority over Jesus. He pulls him aside, rebukes Jesus, and says, God forbid, this is not going to happen to you. No, 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 no. I don't think so. This is not what our stories tell us. This is not what our traditions have told us. Jesus, don't, don't do this. Peter's nervous. No, 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 this is not what we imagined the king would be. No, 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 Jesus, kings conquer, they're not conquered. Kings evict Rome, they're not executed by Rome. Kings set up a kingdom, not a cross on a hill. Jesus turns, the idea is that he turns quickly on his heel and says, get behind me, Satan. What you say when someone brings you donuts when you're trying to not do donuts, right? We understand what this means. Get behind me. And for those who are trying to go without donuts... The table's not really probably the spot for you right now. <laughs> I don't know if you've looked back at that table. Get behind me, Satan. There's a couple things in this, in this phrase here that are important. One, he's saying, get back in your place. You are in front of me. You are trying to lead me. A disciple's role is behind the teacher, not out in front. Get behind me. Get back in your place. And he's not saying that Peter is the Satan. Some translations capitalize it. I don't, I don't like that. It's, you're, in, you're an adversary to me. You're an adversary. Get behind me. So get back in your place, and you're in my way. This is what Jesus is saying here. Get back in line. Get out of my way. Jesus knows the good intentions of Peter. Peter doesn't want his king to die, understandably. But Peter also has some vested interest in, in what happens to Jesus, doesn't he, as one of his disciples? Well, if he goes to Jerusalem and suffers, I imagine Jesus has been saying these things for a while, and the disciples are like, Peter, dude, he just called you the rock. You're the guy. You're the leader. You've got to do something. Next time he says it, just bring it up. Just casually bring it up, okay? Don't make it a thing. Just kind of bring him off to the side and have a conversation with him. Why? Well, because Peter has a vision of kingdom as well, where power, prosperity, and purpose. And if he's the follower, then he has, one, a vested interest. And if this king conquers, then he gets to kind of help rule. He gets to have some cultural power as well. 
But not only that, he doesn't want to lose his life. That's the other side of it. If Jesus is the king he hopes, he gets power. If he's not, then he's dead. Get behind me. This is the proper place for a disciple. This is where discipleship begins, behind Jesus. No one else. Not your favorite pastor. Not your favorite politician. Not your favorite actor who happens to be a Christian. To start discipleship to Jesus means getting behind him, first and foremost. Because when we're out in front, what we're trying to do is we're trying to arrest Jesus with our agenda and our expectations. We tend to do this, don't we? We tend to arrest Jesus with our agendas and our expectations. And then we find ourselves where we thought something was going to happen or was supposed to happen. We get mad at Jesus. And I'm learning more and more and more when things don't go my way. Oftentimes it's because I had a mis-expectation for Jesus rather than a proper vision of who he is. We tend to arrest Jesus with our agendas. The other side of this too, what I want to encourage you with here is to get behind Jesus, is that this, is, this happens shortly after Jesus, Peter has called the rock. Good job, Peter. Great confession, Peter. And then boom, Satan. <laughs> the rock to Satan. From rock to stumbling block. The church can do this sometimes, can't we? The church can sometimes get it really right and do really well and the next moment mess it up. Now, the popular thing to do is to throw the church away and to say, well, they've messed up too much. It's too far gone. We talked about last week, you really don't get Jesus without the church he's building because that's where he promises to be. And so we have to examine what this means for us. This means that we make space for Peters because you were Peter and I am Peter. We get it right, we mess up. We, do, we, we get back in line. There's a lot that the church has gotten wrong, a lot that the church has gotten right. But the problem is not that the church is filled with Satans and Peters. That's how we often view it. Oh, that person in there, I know how he or she votes. They're kind of a Satan. No, 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 that's not it. That's not it. It's not that there are Satans and that there are Peters. It's that Peters can become Satans, and Satans can become Peters. So we ought to create space for the imperfection, ought to create space for the failures, because Jesus did. He accepted and then he held accountable. You don't have to choose between the two. In fact, discipleship demands both. Get behind me. That's the first thing. The second thing is that disciples deny themselves. Disciples deny themselves. Now, self-denial is not self-contempt. It is not self-hatred. It is not obliterating the self. It's actually a way that you actually find yourself according to Jesus. And this idea of soul, life, and self in this text are all the same things. They're referring to the core of who you are. It's not superficially, also not superficially, just giving up tech for a week. That's not denying. That's, not, that's, that's a practice of fasting. That's fine. You should do it. It's a good thing. But it's not what he's talking about here. I like what Dale Bruner says in his commentary. He says, self-denial is not so much giving up chocolates at Lent as it is giving up on ourselves as lords. It is the decision to let another Lord rule one's life. That's self-denial. The proper ordering of the self, not the obliterating of the self. You don't lose your personality. You don't lose your fun. You don't lose your joy. It's actually increased when properly ordered. This text is taught with such somberness in the church. It shouldn't be. Jesus' aim here is life. We'll get to that in a second. But it's a decision to set aside the self. 
the core desires of who you are, evaluate them, bring them to Jesus and say, what would you have me do with them? And this is very challenging in our culture, controversial in our culture, and honestly, to the modern, to the modern era, it sounds oppressive in a culture that is obsessed with individual rights and the cultural narratives that say, do whatever it is that you want to do and don't let anybody stop you. You are the master of your ship. You fix yourself, you find yourself, you do it yourself in our culture. What's interesting is on social media especially, you have these like pop psychology memes that people post all the time. They, they're, a lot of them are very self-oriented, self-centered, self-this. And there, we can trace the, the movement of the self back to a particular point in time. We won't do that today. Maybe, maybe another time. But what's funny is the social media psychologists are years behind what contemporary psychologists, sociologists are finding is that we overemphasize the self and it's leading to a self-crisis. Meaninglessness, loneliness, desperation, anxiety. Our culture has been so self-obsessed that now we overcorrect it a little bit. They're realizing there's a proper ordering of the self that this first century Jewish rabbi seemed to have some insight on. The, the self-esteem movement. More people, more, more professionals than not are saying the participation trophy era is not good for the soul because esteem, esteem is not just, it's, it's something that's bestowed within the context of a community, not something you can fabricate within yourself. It's something that happens together. It's an important correction to some things that were happening, but we can overcorrect. The selfie movement, the desire to constantly be seen, liked, followed, shared, in the presence of the digital world especially, this actually creates more anxiousness, isolation, and frustration because you're constantly competing with the false self that you're putting up online. And it removes the possibility of authentic, authentic, authentic relationships because our social media profiles reflect something that's not reality. It's dangerous to the self. The self-creation movement. Hustle, hustle, hustle. So now we have a handful of, or a majority of people experiencing what we call burnout under the name of hustle culture, under the name of fix yourself, find yourself, do it yourself. The narrative of the self that the culture tells, the story of the self ultimately ends in a tragedy where people are so disconnected, so lonely and anxious, and we're experiencing this crisis of meaninglessness that psychologists and sociologists are trying to wrap their heads around and try to get, move people in a different direction. It's not obliterating the self, it's the proper ordering and understanding of the self. They're now catching up to this ancient rabbi who had a thing or two to say about it. And we've all been infected by this. And so I like what Mark, one of our pastors here, he said basically what self-denial means for him is, stop, is, is to try to stop discipling himself. I loved that. Stop discipling myself. Self-denial asks questions like, what, what's driving me the most? My joy, my angst, my frustrations? And does it align with Jesus? The competing voices in our culture are telling you to define yourself by multiple things. By your job, I work, therefore I am. By your social media accounts, I post, therefore I am. By your social networks, I'm accepted, therefore I am. Through sexuality, there are many competing voices trying to tell you who you are at the center. 
Jesus is saying, get behind me. Deny that sense where you're trying to figure it out within the world and come to him with that information. It's difficult. It's denial of what the world is telling you. In the church, this looks like being willing to be inconvenienced without complaint. Being willing to be interrupted for the needs of others. Sacrificing time for the sake of others. It's a practice that we do as a church. It's the core of the church. In Acts 2, you see that. You see that played out. There's a surrender of all things for the sake of others. There's not this self-focused mentality. When individuals in this church start concentrating on themselves, that's when things start falling apart. And we love stories of self-denial, don't we? We love stories where people give themselves for the sake of others. In fact, that's the deepest longing is to be lost into a story where we are a part of something bigger. We are wired that way. Christy and I watched 13 Lives uh, this past Friday. I don't know if you've seen that. A movie about the 13 kids who were trapped in a cave under a mountain in Thailand a few years back. And they had to do some crazy rescue operation that had never been pulled off before. Pretty good movie. I really enjoyed it. But there's this scene where an engineer is talking with the local people and he says, look, there are, there are holes on top of this mountain that are sinking in that are, that are going to cause these kids to drown if we don't divert the water. And so we've got to figure out a way to divert the water. So they come up with a plan. The problem is, is that to divert, to divert the water, it's going to go into the fields and the crops of many people who are going to lose their livelihood if it's flooded. Their whole their career, their provision, whatever it is, is now at stake. And so the engineer goes to him and he makes him make a decision. He says... We don't know if this will work, but we want to divert the water away from the mountain and onto your fields. And they said, this means we'll lose everything. And I said, yeah, absolutely, it will. Immediately, they said, with almost, they looked back at each other and go, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Self-denial is costly, but it actually gives life. That's what you saw in that movie. But that's not what we buy in our culture. To deny the self feels oppressive in a culture focused on the individual. The last thing disciples do is they take up their cross. Disciples take up their cross. The cross in Jesus' day, so let me, let me preface this. If you're wearing a cross, I'm not jabbing you, okay? I'm not, I'm, okay, I'm not shaming you for wearing a cross. The cross in Jesus' day, however, was not a trinket. It was a torture device. That was the only way it was seen. That was it. The minute they saw a cross, they thought execution in Rome. It was such a brutal device that even to this day, historians say it's one of the most brutally devised torture mechanisms fabricated by the mind of man. To this day. It was so bad that Rome, it was illegal for Romans to crucify Roman citizens. It was a torture device. So when they hear this, they're not thinking metaphorically of, oh, you know, carry my cross. Jesus is summoning them to a lifestyle that may lead to cultural, personal, physical death. It's very much a real thing for them. And most of the disciples, apart from John, ended up dying for their faith. Now, carrying a cross, this is important. It doesn't mean you are seeking the cross by going on war crusades within our culture. The cross is something for Jesus that's inflicted upon you, not something you run after. He's not talking about some kind of self-martyrdom complex. In fact, the early church tried this. Many people were like, oh, we want to give our lives. 
in the early church of the disciples' disciples, a guy named Polycarp wrote a letter one time saying, don't be wasteful with your lives. If you're in a spot where you have to carry the cross, carry it. But don't run towards suffering like suffering itself is virtuous. Don't do that. Follow Jesus right where you are and be okay with the consequences of what it takes. Paul even did this. Paul didn't run up to Rome and say, hey, take me. So I get my... No, no. He was escaping. He was trying to find ways to continue to live his life for the sake of the gospel, but he was perfectly willing and ready to give it up if he had to. This is something that's lost on us, but is real to the people across most of the world who are following Jesus. So take up your cross, not a trinket, it's a torture device, and it's inflicted upon us. And so there's two ways we've, we've understood this text in the church. The first way is, and I'd say we need both, but the first one is receiving the hardships that come with discipleship. This is not talking about just like general suffering. The Bible talks a lot about general suffering and how to endure it. This is talking about for Jesus' sake, meaning you have devoted yourself to Jesus and it's pushed up against something in the culture and you have to make a decision as to whether or not you're going to be okay with the consequences of that. This is strictly about following Jesus, the sufferings attached to that. The cross meant being misunderstood, mischaracterized, marginalized, it might mean missed opportunities at work. I had a relative who had made a decision not to engage something in the workplace that was being asked of him, and he was let go. And it was based upon his conviction of who Jesus is. It violated something deep within him as it relates to following Jesus. And this is a very hard spot in our culture that we have to process. And let me just say, God has a lot more grace than we think he does as we try to navigate these really imperfect and challenging situations. It's not always black and white and clear and clean. Oftentimes these require, it's a mess to figure out. He's got grace for you, okay? Just hear that. But we do need to be willing to be misunderstood, mischaracterized, marginalized in the things that we talk about. Like our understanding of self-denial is radical for our culture. The next thing it means is actively... Passively receiving those things without retaliation, okay? Not getting up in a fit, not getting up in a fit and writing about everything. But the next one is actively pursuing peace. Because guess what happens when the cross is carried to its destination? The torture device becomes a dispenser of grace, peace, and forgiveness. That's what happens when the cross gets to where it's going. And so it's a symbol for us to actively pursue peace in the spaces that we inhabit. The cross is quiet. Jesus didn't say very much. It's heavy. But when it's taken to its destination, it's a dispenser of grace and forgiveness. It means in our culture, we might have to receive a lot of darts without firing back. Because here's the thing. Violence just continues to perpetuate more violence. Always. And what the cross is, is it's that stick in the cycle of violence that you throw into the wheel and the wheel breaks. The small stick can trip up your bike if you've, been, if you've ridden bikes. You know this. That's what the cross does to evil and justice and oppression. It's, it's a different way of thinking about it. It's upside down to our world. We have a world where we want to conquer with force and might. And Jesus says the kingdom's actually not, it's less like a military tank and more like a mustard seed. If you've got a problem with this, you have to take it up with discipleship with Jesus. 
it's hard. It's misunderstood. But ultimately, when we carry the cross, we're aiming to be dispensers of grace and peace, not perpetuators of conflict. Take up your cross, Jesus says. Don't pick up your sword. He tells the disciples, I love this about Jesus. He tells the disciples, go buy a sword. When the perfect time for Peter to use a sword comes up, there is no better time to use the sword. Not one when, you're, when your leader is under the threat. Jesus, go buy a sword. Peter, put that sword away. If you live by it, you die by it. You told me to buy it. Welcome to the kingdom. All right? Messy, right? Take up your cross, not pick up a sword. You know, 2014 and 2015, I remember Starbucks removing Christmas off their cups. And I remember that was the Christian rage in the moment. It was a war on Christmas. New York Times, Washington Post, New York Post, Dallas Morning News. Everybody was covering the cultural anger about Starbucks, Christmas cups. It's a war on Christmas. I don't think that's what Jesus meant when he said take up the cross. We, we live and respond and react to cultural hysteria and fear, not picking up our cross, but picking up the sword of the, of the keyboard, the sword of gossip, the sword of slander, the sword of division. Jesus says, pick up the cross, throw a stick in the spoke. I don't see in the New Testament that we are a riotous people as a church. This doesn't mean you can't demonstrate. doesn't mean you can't march. Martin Luther King had it kind of figured out here. He was peaceful. He promoted peace. And when people who marched with him started doing violence, he took his group elsewhere. He understood that peace works far more effectively than violence. In fact, history proves it. Peaceful movements are twice as likely to succeed than violent movements. There's a reason for that. And if Christians keep rioting at every company that doesn't share our values, pretty much the only places we're going to be able to get our groceries is from Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby, <laughs> which is challenging because they import from these companies that we're, many people are protesting for their candy, for their products. Don't take up the cultural war. Take up your cross. We are disciples, not generals. Paul says Jesus did something at the cross. He said he disarmed the powers. He disarmed the powers. So what this means is that Jesus is not after just simply the structures and systems of Rome. He's after the powers behind Rome that lead to the sort of oppression, domineering, gossip, slander that we see. You can take care of the first one, reorganize systems, and they'll be fallen again in 20 years. But if you take care of the powers behind the powers, something changes. And that's what Jesus is telling us to do here. So what does this mean for us? How do, we, how do we process this? Well, the church is a community of disciples following Jesus. Death to life. And you don't get to life without the death. We are a community that embodies that. And it, makes me, it reminds me of Leo Tolstoy. I'll tell you this quick story. Worship team, go ahead and come on up. Tolstoy, he wrote War and Peace. Famous, famous author literary genius. He tells the story of his life and how he was on this pursuit of meaning. And he was at the height of his career at a young age. He grew up, he was born in a Christian home but rejected it, but moved into 
these higher social spaces where he was drinking the right drinks, walking with the right people, having the right bank account. Everything seemed to be okay, but the problem is it wasn't satisfying to him. And so he goes on this lifelong search. Marriage wasn't the answer for him. Having kids wasn't the answer. He tried all of these different things. He was pulling shelves off that midnight library, pulling books off the shelves of the midnight library. Nothing was working. And he gets to the point where he is despairing to the point. Midnight library is fiction. This is truth. Tolstoy writes in his book, A Confession, that he was contemplating every night, noose or bullet, because he was so disorganized in his heart and life that he could not find a way, see a way out. But then he comes across a community of people living radically different. And the community witness embodying these principles transformed him. Listen to what he says. I saw that the whole life of these people was passed in heavy labor and that they were content with life. In contradistinction to the way which people in our circle oppose fate and complain on it on account of deprivations and suffering and try to avoid all of the suffering the world has, these people accepted the illnesses, the sorrows, without perplexity or opposition and with a quiet conviction that all is good. And I learned to love these people. The more I came to know their life, the life of those who were living and of others who are dead, of whom I read and heard, I loved them more and more and it became easier not only to love them but to live with them. This poor, impoverished, suffering Russian community that he came across was a group of followers that called themselves Christians. And they were embodying, denying themselves, embodying, carrying the cross, embodying moving from death to life, getting behind Jesus, not ahead of him. And it was that witness that transforms people's lives. When we are not as agitated as the world around us, doesn't mean we are indifferent to what's happening around us. Doesn't mean we're not involved with what's happening around us. Doesn't mean we don't go vote. It doesn't mean that we don't get involved. It means that we have a different lens through which we see as the people of God. Our primary place is behind Jesus, denying the self, and carrying the cross. That's what it looks like to follow. The promise is life. The true life you and I so desperately crave. So we are a community of disciples that move people from death to life. Jesus is king. The rest is discipleship. These are the building blocks of discipleship. We will not be a discipleship community without these three components. Thanks for checking us out and listening to the podcast. We hope this resource has been meaningful for you during this time in your life. We invite you to share this episode and leave us a review to let us know how we are doing and sharing the gospel in our cultural climate. Be sure to check us out online at thetablechurch.us.